Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Thanks to everyone who helped lead us in music. That was fantastic. Yes, good job. And now, as we like to say, it can only go downhill from here. Yep. <laughs> well, my name is Andrew, and it's great to be here with you this morning. And uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but it's Christmas this week, which is cool. I hope you're excited. I trust you're excited. I know I am. Um, before I had kids, I was such a, a humbug about Christmas, but um, now seeing their excitement, it just gets me excited, so I, I can't wait. And if you've been with us, uh, particularly these last few weeks of Advent, uh, you know we've been exploring the Christmas story together, and specifically what we've been trying to do is, is look at this Christmas story with fresh eyes, which is really hard to do with Christmas, a story we're so familiar with. Uh, and uh, Christmas uh, is, is about family traditions, right? It's about things we do the same thing every year. We do Elf on the Shelf. We do uh, Advent Calendar. Whatever it is, we do it over and over again. And we all, I think, have this autopilot that we can go on during the Christmas season. We know the album that we play when we put the decorations up. And uh, we know that favorite snack that mom always makes every year. And we know that terrible gift that we get dad every year as well. But we've been trying to look at the Christmas story and let it be as strange and as bizarre as it actually is. What a strange way to save the world. And we've come to the part of the story, uh, the, the actual birth of Christ in Bethlehem, that is truly the strangest part of all. And we, we often miss it, but it's true. And I have this feeling that the easiest person to convince of this strangeness of the story was actually Mary herself. Remember, she had spent nine months carrying around this miraculous baby, right? A baby, a baby conceived of a virgin. She knows this baby's special. She knows that he's destined for great things. And yet, even with all that she knows, I, I, I don't think we could blame her after that fifth contraction in a manger in Bethlehem with only Joseph there to help her, which is like every mother's nightmare, right? <laughs> like, oh, you're the only help I have. Could we blame her for thinking it was not supposed to be this way? I know I couldn't blame her because I know that if I were hatching a cosmic plan to save the world, which is what God is doing in the Christmas story, I would have done it so differently. I would have made it all cute and adorable, right? There's a baby involved that's hard to screw up. I would have done, would have done it with flourish and grandeur so that everybody saw and paid attention, and I would have made it simple and comfortable and easy to accept and understand. But God really doesn't do any of that. The way He saves the world is completely different than what I would do and probably what you would do. And we have to pay attention this morning to the differences. Otherwise, we will miss the point of this Christmas story year after year after year. And if you've, even if you've heard it a thousand times, we cannot get over the, the, the bizarreness and the beauty of this story. So if you haven't done so yet, grab your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2. You've heard readings from Luke chapter 2 all morning long, uh, but we were going we're to start back at the beginning, verse 1. Let's look at this strange rescue plan together. So here's verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor in Syria. Now, stop there for a second. There's something Luke is doing here in this first few verses that I don't want us to miss, and here it is. Here's our first point. 
Christmas is not about warm fuzzies. <laughs> it's about facts. Christmas is not about warm fuzzies. It's about facts. You see, there are many ways to think about the birth of Christ and the Christmas story. And, and whether we're conscious of it or not, uh, this time of year, our culture is constantly bombarding us with these other ways of thinking about Christmas. So, for example, if you're a big Lifetime movie junkie, right? And I know you're, you're not going to admit it, but I know you're out there. Um, you might think Christmas, right, is about togetherness with family. That's kind of the message there. Or that Christmas is the best time of year to meet someone new and fall in love under zany and hilarious and heartwarming circumstances, right? Um, or if you read Charles Dickens, uh, you might think that Christmas is primarily about rediscovering our moral core, right? The Christmas spirit and uh, living a new life, a, a better life. Or if you, uh, if you love the movie Elf, like I do, you might think Christmas is about believing in something, believing in anything, really, just to feel like a kid again and to rediscover a sense of wonder and blind faith before adult life beat the joy out of you, right? And that's really the message of Elf. Um, it is, right? I mean, you're laughing. Or if you're really sophisticated uh, and you read the Wall Street Journal or you listen to Marketplace NPR, you might think Christmas is primarily a boon or bust to the American economy. And that's all it really is. Um, and again, we, we may not be conscious of these things, but we're hearing these all the time. Whatever our particular bent, it's tempting to experience and consume the Christmas season with one or more of those paradigms in our minds. And they're usually very warm and fuzzy, aren't they? They have a happy ending. They have very little pain, very little difficulty, very little suffering, and perhaps most dangerous of all, they, they often make it so easy for us to ignore what Luke is really trying to teach us about the birth of Christ. For Luke, Christmas is not about warm fuzzies. It's not just an inspiring story. Christmas is primarily, for Luke, a story about facts. It's a story about something that happened. Something historical. In those days, he says, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus before Quirinius was governor in Syria. That does not read like a myth or a fairy tale or a romantic comedy or a heartwarming family drama. This is not an, an entertaining introduction to Luke chapter 2. It's almost boring. It reads just like something out of a history book. The same one you had to memorize last week for finals, right? And there are many reasons Luke does this, but at least one of them was to challenge us, the reader, to check the facts. Because when someone presents facts, they are daring you to go check them. That is why lies, which is something I'm sure you're all very familiar with, are generally vague and dodgy, right? If you're out late and you don't know, want your parents to know where you are and they ask you, where were you? You say, oh, I was out with friends, right? As vague as possible. You don't want them to know where you were, who you were with. You don't give facts unless you are ready for someone to check them. And Luke does this because he wants us to know that the Christmas story is not just an inspiring story. It's not just a meaningful story. It is for him, first and foremost, a true story, a factual story that happened in the reign of Caesar Augustus in the first century Palestine during a registration for taxes. And Luke is simply carrying forward. This, this is all over Scripture from beginning to end, it is primarily a book about something that happened. It claims to be true history, and we, we have to take that seriously. We love Christmas stories because they warm our hearts and they cheer us up and they remind us of times past. And if the Christmas story Luke is telling here were just that, we could all say, oh, how cute, and move on. 
which is how many of us approach Christmas. But facts beg to differ. They do not let us get away with that. Facts get in your face, and they challenge you to either believe them and trust them and accept them or to reject them. And listen, I I get it. For the skeptics out there, this is a hard story to believe. God born in the manger to a virgin under a star with the shepherds and the angels and the wise men and the little drummer boy who wasn't actually there, for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, (laughs) but we always picture him there. I get it. I do. I get it. This is hard to believe that God became a baby, but don't ignore it. Take it seriously. Take it on its own terms. Consider it. The last thing Luke wants you to do with chapter 2 of his book is to walk away thinking, what a lovely story. No, it's either a truth of history or a terrible lie that you should reject, and Luke wants you to see it that way. So how do you read the Christmas story? How do you generally read the Christmas story? Is it primarily a story that challenges you to rethink history and your place in it, or is it just another inspirational book to put back in the box with the rest of your decorations in January? When is the last time you read the Christmas story as cosmic history, the story of God saving the world in the most improbable way, and not just as chicken soup for the American soul? You see, if we believe this story, if it actually happened, it changes the way we teach it to our children. It changes the way we give generously to one another during the holidays. It changes the way we love and interact with our families even when it's difficult. And it changes the way we experience grief when we have lost someone that we loved in the past year. If this really happened, it changes everything, doesn't it? Christmas is the story of what God has done and is doing in our world, not simply something to make me feel nostalgic or inspire me to moral living. The story is big. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than your family. It's bigger than football games and all the other stuff we often substitute for the facts of Luke chapter 2. Did this happen or did it not? When is the last time you took that question as seriously as the Bible wants you to? Christmas is not supposed to make you comfortable. It claims to be fact. It challenges you and me to see our lives and to see history itself as radically different than they were before. This story, if it is true, changes the whole world and how we are supposed to live in it. But Luke is not done. He is doing something else in the first few verses of his book of of chapter 2. Luke is the only gospel writer, notice this, to mention Caesar Augustus by name. And he does this very intentionally because there's a way to read Luke chapter 2 as the story of the incredible power and authority of Caesar. He's the reason this whole story kicks off in the first place. But Luke is doing something different. The Christmas story is not about Caesar and all the power and the wealth and the fame that he represents. Christmas is not about Caesar, it's about God. That sounds straightforward, but it's important and it's easy to miss. This is our second point. Christmas is not about Caesar, it's about God. And we need to understand a little bit more about the way the Roman Empire worked in these days to get at this point. So remember, at the time of Jesus' birth, Caesar was one of the most powerful people on the planet. 
and one of the most powerful people the world had ever known up to this point. And the impetus for the whole Christmas story, at least on the surface, is Caesar and his glory and his power, and he decides that it's time to take a census so that he can uh, gather taxes more efficiently and make more money. And the known world complies immediately. That's the kind of power that he has. Because lots of things have changed, granted, since first century Roman Empire, but taxes are not one of them. Taxes have been around a very long time. Now, the real booger of this census is that at least, at least in Jewish Palestine, at least in Israel, people needed to return to their ancestral homeland to be counted in the census. Probably, we think, to retain the rights and laws specific to your hometown. You had to be counted there. And we read that for Joseph and Mary, that town was Bethlehem because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. King David was born in Bethlehem. So that is where Joseph's family line began. Luke points all of this out in verse 4. Unfortunately, Mary and Joseph don't live in Bethlehem. They live in Nazareth in Galilee, which is about 80 miles north of Bethlehem. And right, we whine about driving 10 miles to the DMV and sitting there and waiting. Can you imagine riding a donkey for 80 miles over rough terrain while nine months pregnant just so you can pay taxes to a foreign oppressor? Does that not sound like the worst Christmas you've ever heard of? (laughs) And so Augustus, right, he lifts his finger in Rome and 1,500 miles away, in an obscure province that Caesar will never visit, a young couple he will never know, make a hazardous journey to a backwater city in the middle of nowhere. And because everyone and their mother is in Bethlehem for this census, the city no doubt is jam-packed with people. Every square inch of every room is taken. And if you've ever traveled with a pregnant woman or you've ever been a pregnant woman, you know that arriving on time is very difficult and a long journey like that. So Joseph and Mary, they get there late and there's nowhere for them to stay. And so this young couple must stay outside in a stable or possibly a cave where animals are kept. And at the impetus of Caesar, this couple has a baby outside and they lay him in a manger that night. Now my hunch is that everyone in town All these people who had come back to Bethlehem from all over Israel, they're talking about the tax. That's the talk of the town. What right does Caesar have to take our money? How dare this pagan foreigner who thinks he is a god take more of our money to support his unethical and evil reign? This is a guy who we know took money and hired his own choir to sing praises to him all day long. This is is where their money is going. People are talking politics They're talking economics. They're complaining about this trip to Bethlehem and how expensive it is to stay in town. I mean, I don't know what they're talking about, but I know what they aren't talking about. Nobody, and I mean nobody, is talking about a young couple who arrived late that night. They are not talking about the woman who went into labor in a stable. They are not talking about a baby born in a manger because those things are insignificant compared to the injustice of Caesar and the geopolitical landscape that the Jews found themselves in, right? That was nothing compared to the increased taxes levied against them. There are much bigger and more important things to think about and to talk about and to reflect on than this sad little family outside in Bethlehem. So don't miss this. The most momentous and profound and universe-shattering thing that has ever happened, God became flesh in Jesus, was happening under everyone's nose that night, but Caesar was all anybody cared about. 
Does that at all sound familiar? 2,000 years later, have you noticed that the world is still never aware of what is truly significant in this life? Most of us, and I include myself, get so distracted by what we think are the big things. We think more and talk more about Caesar than we do about Jesus. And we still, every Christmas, often miss this point. It is still so easy to get distracted by power or by circumstance or by your troubles or by your problems than it is to remember that this is a story about God saving the universe. So look at the story another way. Go back to the beginning. Sure, Caesar gives an order, but in the midst of all his political machination and power plays, a young couple expecting their first child arrives in Bethlehem, which, oh, by the way, is mentioned in an ancient Hebrew prophecy as the birthplace of the Messiah. Micah chapter 5. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now just hold that thought for a moment. Think of all the details God orchestrated to bring this family at this moment to Bethlehem. And not just with the tax registration itself, getting Augustus to the throne, getting Rome into power with their unique taxing structure, and back and back and back you could go. Think of all the details God needed to keep straight to get Mary and Joseph and Jesus where we find them in Luke chapter 2. And Luke, in his own subtle way, is asking us a very profound question. Augustus ordered a census, but what king is at work here? Whose will is being done? Who's really in control? Who is the story really about? You see, Caesar can levy a tax, and God can change history. Caesar can order you to do something. God can use you and Caesar no matter what you do. Caesar is playing checkers with his Roman Empire. God is playing chess with human history in Luke chapter 2. And you cannot deny it. The proof is in the pudding. Most of you uh, can't tell me two things about Caesar Augustus unless you got your PhD in Roman history. The only thing he is now famous for, this is the most powerful man in the world at the time, the only thing... he is now famous for is as a footnote in someone else's story. You see, he was emperor when Jesus was born. You know this story is bigger than Caesar because you reference it when you check your calendar. It's almost 2015 AD, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Jesus and not Caesar has become the dividing line of Western history, right? When someone stubs their toe, no one yells out Caesar Augustus. I'm glad you got that. That was good. (laughs) Jesus has the most recognizable name in the entire world. He is the most worshipped and read about and talked about figure in human history. Christmas is a story about God and what He is capable of doing despite the Caesars of the world. So what do you see in the Christmas story? 
Do you only see the accidents of history? Do you see the ups and downs of the headlines? Do you only see the powerful getting their way and the rest of us going along with it? Or do you see God working out His plan regardless of what the world is doing? One of the most powerful lessons of Christmas is that despite all of the awful and seemingly inexplicable and uncontrollable things happening in our world, and there are many of them, God is working. God is sovereign. God is saving. And you can think about it this way. If God can use first century Roman tax law and the corruption of Rome to save the universe, is there anything he cannot do? Is anything beyond his redemption? Is anyone capable of stopping him? And at the same time, don't miss this, God is in the big things, but he's also in the small things, the hidden things, the obscure moments, the ordinary parts of our lives. Think about when a royal son is usually born. Remember when Prince William and Kate had their baby a few years ago? Uh, The entire world watched It was on the news like 24-7 for a month, and he's not even a real king, right? When the king of the universe was born, it was in the middle of nowhere, and only a few shepherds were there to see it. It was so small and so insignificant and so silent, but this is how God works. It's how he works today. This is the kind of king that he is. Do we look for God in the hidden things, in the ordinary things? Are we trusting God with the global crises and our utility bills because the story of Christmas says that we can? Do we see those things in Christmas or do we get distracted by the important things, the big things, the things that other people in the world say are worthy of our time and attention? Christmas is one of the most powerful stories of hope his, God's mercy and God's goodness, even in the midst of terrible oppression, even when we do not understand what he is up to, because every Christmas, and not just, this, not just the first one, is a reminder to us that our lives and history itself from beginning to end is God's story of rescue and no one else's. And it's easy to get distracted in the midst of Christmas and to forget that God is in charge, but Christmas It's so easy to forget that, and it's also so easy to sentimentalize and to sanitize for our consumption. But again, Luke does not let us get away with that, and this is our final point. Christmas is not cute, but it is glorious. It's not cute, but it's glorious. Luke tells the story, I think, with an irony that we cannot miss, because after pointing out that God's absolute sovereignty and power over Caesar... After making the most powerful empire the world had ever known, he made it God's plaything. It's clear at this point that God can do anything. He's crafted thousands of years of history to get to this moment. And right when we begin as a reader to grasp that point, we read this in verse 7, but there was no place for them at the inn. And it's like, what? God, of all the things you did not call ahead and make room... What's going on? And I mean, for thousands of years, people have tried to remove the tension of this story. Basically, we've sentimentalized this moment, and we've made it more friendly and easier to swallow. Look at any um, nativity scene. They're so serene and so calm. Everyone's happy. There's perfect indirect lighting. Mary's never looked better, but let's be realistic. (laughs) 
This is not content for a greeting card. Remove thousands of years of Christian tradition and commercialization. This is a story about a baby and a family so destitute. They have a baby outside with animals and everything that goes with animals. And after he's born, the only place to put him to keep him out of harm's way is a scratchy old feeding trough. And soon, he will have to flee his hometown with his parents in the midst of a genocide. That's Matthew. Matthew will tell us that. And frankly, this will be Jesus' entire life in a nutshell. He is poor. He is rejected. He is an outcast. There it is. Merry Christmas. And it's not cute. It's sad. It's depressing. Maybe it's even tragic, but it's glorious. At least that's what the angels seem to think in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. That's their interpretation of what's happening now, glory is a funny word, and it can mean a lot of different things, but in, in context here, in essence, someone's glory is the thing that reveals the most about them. A king's glory might be an architectural feat, it might be a military victory, it might be a beautiful statue made in their honor. These things summarize someone's power and their achievements and what they've accomplished, who they are and what they've done. That's their glory. So here in Luke 2, the angels say that Jesus' birth, God becoming man, the incarnation, born in a manger, is God's highest glory. Of all the things that reveal God's glory from the stars in the heavens to the complexity of the human cell, over all of creation, from top to bottom, this baby in a manger says more about God than anything else he has ever done. This little baby outside in a manger, not even a roof over his head, no doubt screaming at the top of his lungs, reveals more about God and His glory and His reign than anything that has come before or will come again. Divinity in the flesh, made like one of us, God made vulnerable, God made killable. This is, in God's opinion, His finest hour. It is a glorious moment. And this incredible news that God came near us in Jesus Christ, don't miss this, is shared first and foremost with the nobodies of the world. The angels are so overjoyed when Jesus is born, they go out and the first thing they do is they find the least important people they can. A group of shepherds, a group of people considered unclean and unworthy, the last kind of people you would think a king would want to see. And this is truly the strangest thing about Christmas, because if you and I were planning this, wouldn't we have made Jesus the next Caesar? Wouldn't that have, have you ever thought about that? Wouldn't that have been so much easier? If God can do anything he wants, and if he could have saved the world in any other way, why isn't the Christmas story about Caesar Augustus having a son in his palace and wrapping him, you know, in gold diapers? Why is that not the Christmas story? What am I missing here? We would have done that because it would have been easy, but God didn't. And the question is why? because it would have communicated so little about who he really is, about how he sees power and about what he thinks is truly glorious in this universe. When Paul reflects on the Christmas story in Philippians chapter 2, he says this about what God is doing in Jesus. He says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. 
being born in the likeness of men. You see, the world did not just need a sovereign king, it needed a servant. If Jesus had come as Caesar, he could have changed the world, but I do not think he could have saved it. Christmas is God's message to us that there is nothing he would not do to save us, and there is no one so low and so unnoticed and so unimportant that they are beyond his reach and beyond his care. And God needed to show us that service is the only real power in this universe. And we needed to see that God loved us so much, he used his infinite power and glory and might and wisdom not to avoid pain and suffering, but to enter it, to come near to us in it. Jesus leaves behind glory and beauty and wealth in heaven that we cannot even fathom. We, have no, we don't even have a concept for it. He willingly enters our world of pain and of loneliness and of difficulty and of injustice, and He experiences it, all of it to the full. In other words, God's glory, His proudest moment, the most important thing to Him is coming near to you. Emmanuel, not God over us, but God with us, God beside us. And the story, his his coming into the world, he's obedient unto death for us. The same child that is wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, Luke tells us, is wrapped in a death shroud and laid in a tomb for our sin. This is a message we so desperately need. And it can never get old, no matter how many Christmases we've celebrated over a lifetime. Christmas is not an easy story. It is not a comfortable story. It turns the world upside down. The story of the birth of Jesus Christ does not leave us the way it found us. And I know, I know we would have done it so differently. But thank God this Christmas you and I are not in charge. Because we would have done it differently, but God did it perfectly. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect this week and and, and afterward about the beauty and the audacity of this Christmas story, I pray by your spirit you renew a sense of awe and wonder and joy and worship about what you have done. The facts of Christmas, that this happened and it changes everything that this is a picture of your love for the world and everything you would give to save us. So God, this Christmas, empower us with that message. Give us boldness to live this out and proclaim it in everything that we do. We pray this in his name, amen.